Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we tackle topics of interest to Black folks through the lens of academic scholarship and colorful insight. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey everyone, I'm Melissa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. So we have been teasing this episode topic. We've been teasing y'all about doing this episode topic. So it's finally time. Today we're talking about (laughs) the African diaspora, ADOS, which stands for the American Descendants of Slaves, the Anthropological Fave, Kinship, the Woman King, and more. And we'll be reading Saidia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, and finally, asking some questions about the so-called diaspora wars. Absolutely. So before we give too much away, because I know y'all are like chomping at the bit or whatever that thing is called. Apparently it's champing. (laughs) It's champing at the bit. Champing at, okay. Yeah, but you don't want to say that. I know nothing. You got to be, you got to speak to the masses and they believe that it's chomping. That's from billions. Mm. For any any billions listeners out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is what I get for trying to be relevant. Let me stick to my lane. Um, (laughs) Before we give too much away, we would like to just remind y'all that creating episodes like these would not be possible without the support of listeners like you. And the best way to support us is by becoming a patron where you can access the Zora's Daughters community. You speak to us personally. Like if you're trying to DM us on IG and get us for real, you're not about to get us for real. Um, So head on over to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to learn more. You'll get to see some exclusive videos and audio from our episodes. We have a, a really nice clip from our last episode um, that we hinted at. And so you can go ahead and listen to that and listen to us talk about 90 Day Fiance and the Thanks. But if you're like, okay, become a patron's not for me. Another way that you can support us is by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, following us on social media and sharing our episodes with your friends, your family, your students, your neighbors, and that one person at work that refuses to respect your offline hours on Slack. I'm not speaking from personal experience, but I know I've heard. Um, <laughs> just any and everybody should be listening to Zora's Daughters. Exactly. And we are working hard for y'all. I, I was informed that the last episode, <laughs> you could hear some chirping, some tweeting from the background on my audio. And that is because <laughs> we... We're recording very late into the evening, okay? Because we're working hard for y'all. Mm-hmm. We're working hard for you. <laughs> so to add to that, please pick up some merch. Please support us. Help us. Please. PLS. <laughs> I know, I know. I've seen a lot of people picking up the notebooks and the mugs. So you really did take us up on taking notes, sipping tea with us, literally, so if you've forgotten all of the links, all of the information that we just told you, you can just head to zorasdaughters.com and you'll find our shop, our social media accounts, our transcripts, and a bunch of other goodies. Period. Uh, let's get into this episode today. Uh, Alyssa, what is our word for the day? The word for today is the old, spelled with an E because it's that old, anthropological <laughs> favorite, kinship. We mostly don't study kinship in the same way that we used to, but we'll give a quick overview. 
<laughs> Listen, there's still there's still some departments out there. Stop doing them circles and squares, please. Girl, and the triangles. The triangles. I don't. Mm, I don't even know. I think I've only seen them in, in books. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but we will give you a quick overview, and then we'll bring it right around to how anthropologists are thinking through thinking about kinship today. So kinship, which I would gloss as the network of social relationships, was originally the way anthropologists would make sense of and analyze political, economic, and social relations in so-called pre-modern societies, which was the purview of the early anthropologist. So I had a professor who told me she had to learn to create kinship charts in grad school, so she was mapping lineage, affines, cognates, co-sanguinity, consanguinity, Something like that. Mm. And so on. Well, I know some of those words. <laughs> I know. I think affine is someone that you're related to through marriage. And cognates or mm. consanguinity, I believe, is blood relationships. But mm. even those even those have been troubled in um, anthropology today. But we'll get there. So I have a vague understanding of what those things really mean. But in the early days, anthropologists would essentially drop into a society, drop into a community. They would record the language, chart social relationships or kinship, and document folklore and customs. And then they would also document material culture like art, carvings, pottery. And then they would also document anatomy and measure anatomy. If you think about those, you know, old school images of people walking around measuring heads. And so this blossomed into the four fields of anthropology, which are linguistic, cultural, biological, or physical, anthropology, and archaeology. Ooh, I was going to say something smart, but then I it left my <laughs> it left my mind just like that. Um, kinship studies helped anthropologists understand economic structure, particularly lines of inheritance, and categorize societies as matrilineal or patrilineal. Like any major concept, there were different theorists. So descent theorists who posited that kinship systems existed to ensure the political and economic persistence of different lineages, and alliance theorists who emphasized kinship as a system of marriage and incest rules, that is, who you can and cannot marry. And so I should also note that anthropological kinship owes much to Africa, since many of these kinship studies were conducted by Africanist anthropologists. And many of those anthropologists, right, were helping imperial nations colonize. So that's our that's our history that we have to really sit with as anthropologists. Yes, contend with, which people love to gloss as anthropology was the handmaiden of colonialism. And then they say that and they're like, mea culpa, and then they continue to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You heard it here first. <laughs> All right, so (laughs) sparked in part by David M. Schneider's A Critique of the Study of Kinship and exemplified by Kath Weston's monograph, Families We Choose, Lesbians, Gays, Kinship, which uh, I believe was published in 1991, contemporary anthropologists focus more on the symbolic aspects of kinship, which also, of course, is related to the cultural turn. And we won't get into that today. One day we'll talk about mm. the turns of anthropology and what that means, but it's a shift. <laughs> There's too many. There's too many. Going in circles. But it's basically a, a shift <laughs> in attention, um, and and theories that are essentially used to frame frame people's analyses of society. 
So today you're less likely to find people creating kinship sharp charts and more likely to read about them trying to understand what it means to be a relative and how different cultures and communities make kin. While people often assume that there is little place for kinship in modern anthropological studies, especially when we're concerned with more serious, more serious quotes in quotes topics like politics, dispossession, capitalism, climate change, the ideas and practices of kinship are integral to thinking through race, bodies, and personhood. We've talked about partis sequitur ventrum on the podcast before. We've, we've also talked about ungendering a few times. And so kinship is in, implicated in these conditions and specifically in the mm -hmm. condition of blackness. So if you want to read some, some people who are working um, in a more contemporary sense with kinship, you can read Leif Mullings um, and Rishay J. Daniel Barnes, who we had on the podcast. Um, so they've done some more contemporary projects on kinship in the black family. Kinship is also implicated in studies of technology, especially reproductive technology, and anthropological studies of ethics and care. Indigenous scholars are also writing about reclaiming the kinship worldview and what that means for our collective future. So much great work is coming out about kinship, trying to, you know, I don't want to say reclaim, but bring it back to more indigenous knowledges around it. And as I've said before in the podcast, as a black queer woman, I have my own practice of family or kin practice, right, which differs from the traditional ways of understanding kinship through these kind of biological or blood connections uh, or marriage. And so the people that I make family, I make kin are my friends, right? We don't have any blood relation, but they are the ones that I will call kin, call closest to me, right? And we've also talked about on this podcast, like as a practice of kin making, that by naming ourselves daughters of Zara, right, we're bringing our academic aunties, our academic ancestors, right, into the conversations with our own experiences. We're also being academic. We are academic aunties now. You know, it's a good place to be. I, I, I like being an auntie, honestly. I still thought, I, was, I, thought I thought I was still a cousin, but because I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm behind. I'm out of the times. I'm behind the times. No, I'm. I, I don't know. Do you want to be behind them or in front of them? I don't know. But <laughs> uh, I, I would like to be. What's with worse? <laughs> See, you know, I'd rather be, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like Zora was ahead of the times, so she was before her time, and I think that's okay. I think that's great. Because really, the people, you know what? When you, when you are a man, and you are, and you are ahead of the times, or whatever, you're before your time, or whatever the case may be, you get called a genius. But when you are a woman, especially a black woman, and you are ahead of the times, then you get you get herstened. You get herstened. Or you get uh Corinne Gaines. Or you uh -huh. get what you know? Yeah. I'm not even gonna go down that road today. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna go down that road today. But, but yeah, we so... are <laughs> <laughs> So without us even meaning to, we are also, you know, calling forth our own anthropological roots with, with this kinship stuff, you know. But today, mm -hmm. what we really wanted to talk about is the fracturing and the impossibility of kinship relations that made the slave 
and that are foundational to the position of blackness in the United States. So let's move on to what we're reading. Today, we are reading Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Trade by Saidia Hartman. Uh, Dr. Saidia Hartman is university professor and professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts from Wesleyan University and her PhD from Yale University. Hartman's major fields of interest are African-American and American literature and cultural history, slavery, law and literature, and performance studies. She is on the editorial board of Kalalu, and she has been a Fulbright, Rockefeller, Whitney Oates, and University of California President's Fellow. She is also... You you cannot forget her MacArthur Genius Award. Cannot forget the MacArthur Genius Award. Um, it's so fabulous that it is not on her university bio website yet um, <laughs> for some reason. Right, uh, Professor but we Hartman. Know. We know. But we, we were know. There. We were at the. We were at the celebration. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, in beyond well deserved. So, Professor Hartman is the author of Scenes of Subjection: Terror, Slavery, and Self Making in Nineteenth Century America. Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the, the Atlantic Slave Route, and Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval, and she has published essays on photography, film, and feminism, and she is beginning a new project on photography and ethics, which I am very excited to see how um, how she'll change the world again, um, so mm-hmm. it's just an honor and a pleasure to read her work today. So for today's episode, we read the prologue and the first two chapters of Lose Your Mother. So Hartman takes us on quite the journey throughout the text. And really, this is just going to be a quote heavy what we're reading, because how much can can little us really add? Now, (laughs) who else can say it better, honestly? (laughs) (laughs) So in Lose Your Mother, she poses and attempts to answer the questions. What was the afterlife of slavery? And when might it be eradicated? What was the future of the ex-slave? She starts with the alienating experience she had in Ghana, marked by the way Ghanaians referred to her as Obruni, or stranger. And Obruni is actually really interesting, um, and we'll talk about this later, but I've been to Ghana twice, and they've never called me Obruni. But that's really a word that they use or reserve for white strangers or non-white strangers who appear white so when you're called an abroni or an abroni um that's kind of a, a marker of race but they sometimes just use it for americans in general too interesting and i think you know we've got to think about the time frame as well because i believe she wrote that she was there in 1996 mm-hmm. and i think there's been a lot more there's been this resurgence of the whole back to africa mm-hmm. um Back to Ghana, descendants of, I believe that even like Jamaicans now, they can go to Ghana without a visa. Yeah. Um, and now it's the decade of African descendant people. So I think there's been like a, a resurgent and a change in mindset. So that would be an interesting um, anthropology project for anybody else. For there. somebody. <laughs> for somebody, somebody not us. <laughs> but that would be an interesting one. In any case, she remarks that their calling her a Bruni disrupted any fiction of kinship that she might have imagined. She says, 
quote, as a slave baby, I represented what most chose to avoid, the catastrophe that was our past and the lives exchanged for India cloth, Venetian beads, cowrie shells, guns, and rum, end quote. A Bruni forced her to admit that as a black American woman, she was a stranger everywhere. Kinship is intimately connected to belonging, but what is belonging for the descendants of the enslaved? Right. And so she really dives deep into this question throughout the book. Um, But we want to start with just this idea of kinship and kind of trace it through these first couple of chapters. And in thinking about the inheritance of dispossession, right, that all of the descendants of the enslaved face, but particularly for those um, in the United States, right, there is a, a sense of alienation, that sense of like belonging nowhere so that you are a stranger everywhere. And this is what remains after, and I'm using my square, scare quotes here, slavery. And so this book is actually one of the first places where Hartman defines the afterlife of slavery, which is a term that we hear people throwing around now and now a whole bunch of stuff got afterlives. Um, <laughs> but Lose Your Mother was actually one of the first places where Hartman defines it. And she says, quote, slavery had established a measure of man and a ranking of life and worth that has yet to be undone. If slavery persists as an issue in the political life of Black America, it is not because of an antiquarian obsession with bygone days or the burden of a too long memory, but because Black lives are still imperiled and devalued by a racial calculus and a political arithmetic that were entrenched centuries ago. This is the afterlife of slavery, skewed life chances, limited access to health and education, premature death, incarceration and impoverishment, I, too, am the afterlife of slavery. And so in that quote, right, she's not just positioning the afterlife of slavery as something that happens economically or financially or, you know, interpersonally, right? But it's something that is actually marked on the bodies of Black people. And I think that is something that um, is very important for us to underscore as well. Mm. Throughout the text, Hartman explores kinship and belonging for descendants of enslaved African people. She questions for herself and for the reader, what is useful about the myth of an African utopia? Quote, the vision of an African continental family or a sable race standing shoulder to shoulder was borne by captives, exiles and orphans and in the aftermath of the Atlantic slave trade. Racial solidarity was expressed in the language of kinship because it both evidenced the wound and attempted to heal it. The slave and the ex-slave wanted what had been severed, kin. Those in the diaspora translated the story of race into one of love and betrayal, end quote. She is, she is shaking the table. She's shaking mm-hmm. the table and disrupting our assumptions about the continuity of the Black experience across the diaspora. She contextualizes her presence as a researcher. So often Black Americans go to Ghana or another African country in search of that royal history, right? We've all heard it. We were, we were kings and queens and <laughs> we were pharaohs and so on. And, you know, the pyramids were built for us by us. People, people fubooed the pyramids. <laughs> However... You mean it wasn't, the, it wasn't the Greeks and the Romans and... Who taught Egyptians how to... Anyway. Mm, anyway. I, mm, I thought it was the other way around. 
It definitely was, but I'm sorry. That's the other. That's the other flip of the history. <laughs> so instead of going in search of this, of this like royal lineage, right? She was determined to find the history of the commoners, the discarded, quote, the unwilling and coerced migrants who created a new culture in the hostile world of the Americas, and who fashioned themselves again, making possibility out of dispossession. End quote. There's that word again, dispossession. Last week's episode. Mm. So this this theme I think is something that contribute that like continues throughout her work, right? In Wayward Lives, um, beautiful experiments. She's kind of looking, she's looking at these stories that have gone untold, and she's trying to tell these stories of of um, young women and girls who have just been disappeared through the archives or whose lives were not worth um, saving or being told or being written about. So I think it was really cool to see that progression. I was I was like, oh, this is, you know, Wayward Lives is kind of this progression of what she was talking about. She Her interest in, um, is like a progression of the interest that she was talking about in uh, Lose Your Mother. Yeah, I think, um, I guess it's, I'm like, how much of my fangirling do I want to dissuade? <laughs> um, so having read, I guess, almost everything, she's written I would say that that's been like uh, a method of hers from the beginning especially in scenes of subjection mm. um like uh, scenes is about that kind of finding the terror of slavery in these kind of small insignificant moments right so that mm. so instead of looking to the spectacular to say oh this is violence right to say okay what about these kind of um ordinary interactions but that, that is a very poor summary of scenes. So I know there are people here who will ride for Hartman. I understand. I, I did not do a good job of summarizing it, but <laughs> I just want to say that like, it's definitely, it's definitely been um, fun and exciting to read how the focus shifts throughout her career. Like you say, like kind mm-hmm. of like, um, but she's always had a, like a feminist focus, which is really amazing. Um, yeah, and I think, but what's really important to note about what you what you say is you talk about this kind of the person that's written out of the archive or, or missing, or disappeared or ephemeral, right? Is that that is what makes her retrieval of kinship and belonging, and what makes lose your mother such a, a original. I'm like, what's the word? Uh, the original <laughs> like intervention, mm. right? It it was it was the fact that she was like looking for those um, in the archive that don't get written about, um, as opposed to kind of trying to, as you say, trace our royal <laughs> lineage, right? Um, and, and I mean, she does she does talk about how this that started quite early. It's it's from her own experience mm-hmm. seeking kin, right? She was looking for, I believe it was her great-great-grandmother. She had found uh, just a, a very brief quote from her in the archives and when she went looking for it again, she couldn't find it. So there was, yeah. so at that point she was like, there's a slipperiness to this archive um, mm-hmm. that I can kind of mine for, for more information and um, for a theory of black life and the afterlife of enslavement. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. So if you haven't listened to her talk about her method, um, just Google her. 
watch some YouTube <laughs> stuff. It's really, I like don't, I think she's the one who explains her method the best. So I would not even try to summarize it. Um, but in this work, Lose Your Mother, what I thought was oh, just really interesting to note, right, is that she's not there to recover an African past that supplants her American experience. So what we normally encounter, right, when people go go home, quote unquote, to Africa, right, is that they're searching for this history that can somehow, they can somehow exchange for the shame of being a descendant of an enslaved person. Mm-hmm. And so what Hartman really does is push back against this idea of that even being possible, right? Um, and so... She really puts pressure on these kind of pan-Africanist descriptions of the present and the past that ignore the reality that there is one, that there was no uniform Africa before colonization, right? So when we're even reaching back, what are we reaching back to and who are we reaching back for, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned, right, this other kind of pan-Africanist, but it tends to be more masculine, this view, right, that assumes that we're all descended from King Tut. Or, you know, um, who, whoever. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, right, these, these wanting some ancestral claims to power and authority that then they can, you know, transform into these kind of patriarchal claims for power and authority over um, black women, black non-cis men, black children, mm. right? Um, and so on page 40, she says, Quote, I knew that no matter how far from home I traveled, I would never be able to leave my past behind. I would never be able to imagine being the kind of person who had not been made and marked by slavery. I was black, and the history of terror produced that identity. Terror was captivity without the possibility of flight, inescapable violence, precarious life. There was no going back to a time or place before slavery. And going beyond it, no doubt, would entail nothing less momentous than yet another revolution. Revolution. A revolution. No, I was like, that just made me think about uh, Kirk Franklin. And when, <laughs> and when the people were like making that meme, it was like, do your bitch ass want a revolution? And it just made me think of, I'm like, maybe we should ask black people, do your bitch ass want a revolution? But... <laughs> Listen, there are so many reasons that I'm like, are we ever going to be free? Are we ever going to be free? Um, that's that's, that's Afro-pessimist episode number two, actually. That is what we'll, we'll talk about. Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think, I think what you were saying was, was really interesting because Hartman, she briefly reflects on how Maya Angelou talked about staying as far away from the slave castles and, uh, and other memory sites. And so Angelou said, quote, although I let a lie speak for me, I had proved that one of their descendants, at least one, could just briefly return to Africa, and that despite cruel betrayals, bitter ocean voyages, and hurtful centuries, we were still recognizable. Hartman responds, quote, a lie was the price of kinship, which, as the emigres discovered, was much less inclusive or elastic than they had anticipated. Kinship was as much about exclusion as affiliation. As it turned out, Alluding the slave past was the prerequisite to belonging, end quote. Mm. So all of this begs the question, what do descendants of enslaved African people have to lose in assuming an African identity? These losses underscore the violence of colonization and chattel slavery. And I mean, this is also, I mean, who does this go back to? 
exclusion and inclusion, those are like mm. key to identity. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about identity, which is one of my uh, preoccupations. And you have an interesting theory about it. So I look forward to Yo, I feel like people are going to dislike me, but um, people love you. <laughs> they adore you. You are adored, Brendan. Oh, thank you. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, the gays might have something to say. Uh, so <laughs> I right. So to get back to these kind of, these losses that are um, that actually really again show us the violence of colonization and chattel slavery. This book is such a generative book and we there's like no way that we would be able to do its complexity justice in our little, you know, what we're reading segment. So y'all are going to have to read it for yourselves. It's a beautiful read too, mm-hmm. right? So it's it definitely reads like a novel almost, um which is one of a, a, one of Hartman's gifts. Um but one thing that I found interesting was was Hartman's insistence that slavery is the vehicle that made us in us. All right, so this idea that actually we need to sit with the fact that without slavery, black people, right, as a category, right, blackness, right, as a category would not necessarily exist. Uh, so the violence of the transatlantic slave trade, the centuries of dispossession, this feeling of being stranger everywhere is actually what makes Black Americans us. And for Hartman, right, distinguishing between kinship and race um, has critical stakes in um, understanding the role of slavery in our dispossession. So she says, quote, in Ghana, kinship was the idiom of slavery. And in the United States, race was. The language of kinship absorbed the slave and concealed her identity within the family fold. At least that was the official line. Whereas the language of race set the slave apart from man and citizen and sentenced her to an interminable servitude. But as I found out, the line between masters and slaves was no less indelible, even when it wasn't a color line, which that we're going to come back to in our mm-hmm. next segment, right? Mm-hmm. The line between masters and slaves cannot be erased, even when there is not a color line. So, yeah, the set of questions that I, I'm leaving for us to think about, and as I'm thinking about, right, is if kinship is about connection, right, whether it be real or imagined, right, how does it serve the descendants of the enslaved? And Hartman asks... Right, what connection had endured after four centuries of dispossession? Right? The question of before was no less vexed since there was no collective or pan-African identity that pre-existed the disaster, the disaster of the slave trade. Were desire and imagination enough to bridge the rift of the Atlantic? And I think that's something that we all have to think about. Yeah, what you said actually got me thinking about about the, sh- the shame, about trying to replace the shame of slavery with, with this African identity, we can say. But is there, I'm, I'm like, is the shame really about slavery or is it that people just don't want to be black? In so many ways, right? If we take the Afro-pessimist TM route, one could ask the question, well, is there a difference? Mm. 
Is there a difference between the condition of the slave and the condition of the black? If we take a black life approach, which fundamentally sees that there is a difference between the slave and the black. I don't know why I'm saying it like that today, but I'm going to lean into it. Um, <laughs> the black. Maybe I'm feeling real Southern today. Um, then you would you would have an interesting way to answer that question. I personally, well, we'll, t- we'll talk about when we get to identity. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> well, we're almost there. We're just going to talk about some of Hartman's final words in chapter two, which I think will lead us perfectly into the next segment. She writes, quote, in Ghana, slavery wasn't a rallying cry against the crimes of the West or the evils of white men. To the contrary, it shattered any illusions of a unanimity of sentiment in the black world and exposed the fragility and precariousness of the grand collective we that had yet to be actualized, end quote. Bom, bom, bom. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> so here we are and what 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 in the world what what in the world what in the world what okay is all right on? what is happening we are i'm, I'm like stretching i'm getting ready yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, because we made it through the other two sections pretty, we got some time here. We oh, we're ready because we got lots to say. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. This is what we're doing now. Okay. We're gonna go back and forth in time, back and forth mm-hmm. in place. You know, time is a construct. But if you need to go back for some refreshers on some of the terms that we've been using, uh, you can check out season one, episode seven. Holy is the black woman. We talked about the word diaspora. Season one, episode 15, uh, Bitch Better Have My Money. We defined reparations and we talked a little bit about ADOS. And season two, episode nine, Separate But Equal Month. Uh, there we talked about the 1619 Project, ADOS, and the Diaspora Wars, but those were very brief conversations. So this is not a new topic, it's an evergreen topic. And we're gonna go a little bit more in depth. So, what the heck? are the diaspora wars. What, what, what is that? So early anthropologists would call this intratribal conflict. <laughs> <laughs> they really would, though. They really would. I'm sure, there's an art- I'm sure there's an article out there, or someone can write a very facetious one about it. Um, I would actually love to see a, a satire um, written by the right person. Um, but even that could be considered a misnomer because as we learned from Hartman, the connection of universal blackness is a tenuous one. But essentially this diaspora wars, it's a clash of ideals among different cultures within the African diaspora, a a cross-cultural conflict, if you will. So I think one of the events uh, or moments that illustrated this recently was the drama around Adele wearing the um, bathing suit with the Jamaican flag and her hair was in shiny bumps. That's what we call them, uh, Jamaicans. Uh, other folks call them Bantu knots. So black Americans were like, cultural appropriation, that's appropriation. And black Brits were like, calm down, bruv. That's cultural. <laughs> Stay calm. Stay calm, bruv. That's cultural appropriation and mind your business. Yeah. Debate. No, I'm kidding. 
<laughs> and go. Um, yeah, Diaspora Wars. I, hmm, as a Black American person who is historically a Black American, um, even though my grandmother's father immigrated from the Bahamas, I learned. Actually, Jafari Allen told me that um, Bahamian people come to the U.S. and they're like the fastest um, black non-U.S. group to kind of acclimate and to assimilate. So they like they they're they're Bahamianists. Um, they not that they lose it, but they basically um, look more like Black American people faster than others. So they might not hold on to their um, immigrant identity as long. Um, so yeah, I didn't know what it means to be black and Southern. Um, my friend Zakia and I, we, we call ourselves Afro Carolinian folks. Um, and I actually, I actually, so I guess I'll just say what I need to say. So I've been like thinking lately about identity just in general and, this might seem controversial to folks, but I really do think that like we, in some ways we choose who we are, right? Um, and so by me calling myself black, I'm choosing to fall under this kind of like identity marker that means that I experience oppression in certain kinds of ways, right? And so when people who don't look like me right, who may be lighter complected, have different hair texture, have different whatever, whatever, call themselves black, right, choose to call themselves black, right, they're also calling themselves into a history of oppression that they themselves might not experience, right, which is where we get a lot of issues around, you know, colorism and featureism and things like that. Uh, and so I think by working within these kind of these identity markers of like race and ethnicity, right, which were given to us, right? It's not like we as quote black people got to choose the word black and say, well, this is what it means to be black, right? But these, um, that we, there are certain assumptions that are made then that we share like experiences of oppression because we fall under this label of black. And while there is, there might be a shared experience for a lot of us, for some of us, right? They don't necessarily have that experience. And, um, ooh, I'm like, ooh, I'm just thinking about the folks who are going to be like, oh, girl, don't tell me I'm not black. You can't tell me I'm not black. Um, but I'm going to just, I'm going to just leave it like, like this, right? Identity is a shortcut to understand how to oppress people. That is where I've come to. So as someone who is queer, right, I had to make the choice to be queer and to be out um, about that. I could have made a choice to not be out and to, and to basically pass or whatever the fuck you want to call it as a straight woman and benefit from that. Right? But me choosing to be queer, like I choose, I chose queerness, right? I might not necessarily choose the people I'm attracted to, but I can choose this identity of queerness, if that makes sense. Like it's not like it's mm. I'm trying to separate identity from identity from behavior and also identity from these kind of biological or other things that we 
assume um, identity covers, right? Like, like just because someone is black doesn't mean that they have the same genetic makeup as the next black person next to them, right? But we assume that because both of us are black, that we have similar experiences under that racial identity marker, right? That we both choose. Um, so if that's not exactly clear, that's because I'm like trying to figure out how to say this in a way that doesn't make people, <laughs> maybe people hate me, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I don't see why people would hate you. I think, uh, <laughs> I think that makes, I think that makes perfect sense that we, that we do, I mean, effectively what you're saying is identity as you're speaking about it is a label and therefore we choose the labels that right um i should say that we choose to no i was gonna say maybe that's true about something like queerness and maybe that's true for something like for someone like megan markle who can pass or something like that that you can choose the labels that you operate within um but I don't, I don't know if that's always true of blackness. It can be, uh, but I don't think it, it always is. Yeah. So I, I don't always so, get to choose whether or not I'm black. No. Because and I'm not saying. Right. So there's, so there's, there's different definitions of identity mobilizing here, right? So there's the like, that, which is what I was saying, like the identity being a shortcut to under, for people to understand how to oppress you. Right, that is outside coming in. Right, I have no control over how other people know me, right, or choose to classify me or what identities they assign me. Like I told you about that time that I was like doing some teaching lesson and I said that I was queer, and this white woman was like, "I would have never said that you were a queer person." Right, so me choosing to tell her that I'm queer, right? In that moment, shifted what she understood about me and shifted how she would interact with me. Mm-hmm. If I had chosen not to say it, um, then she would have went under the assumptions, whatever her assumptions were about, uh, whatever, I don't know, maybe the wig I had on, whatever. That made her assume that I was straight, right? And so, like, there's, there's like different things that are working in tandem. But the main reason why I, I want to open up open folks up to the idea of identity being something that we choose is because um, I really want to highlight that it's something that is socially constructed. And if we're trying to think about a world in which we're going to be free, right, um, we might need to think about these quote unquote labels or identities that we give ourselves and the assumptions that are held within, right? So the assumption that me as a black person because I meet another black person, I'm going to automatically be in solidarity with them because we share this identity of blackness, even though we have completely different experiences and the things that they do actually aid in my oppression, right? That is actually detrimental to a freedom project. Mm. And so what would it mean for us to say that politically blackness does something, maybe interpersonally blackness does something Um, So I can lay claim to this identity black because this is how other people see me. This is how they oppress me. This is how I move through the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's who I am. I can determine who I am. But that's that's part of a, Mm -hmm. I think, a a larger imagination around 
freedom thinking that people like there are folks who will say, well, no, because other people see you as black, then you are black point blank and period. And it doesn't matter how you see yourself. Um, but that comes with assuming this kind of European defined identity for what it means to be black. And like, how do we, and then we constantly have our, our wars of trying to figure out how do we move outside of this predetermined condition of black that means, right, it's huge life chances, uh, <laughs> you know, access, yeah, not inadequate access to resources and things like that. Yeah, and I, I think that these, <laughs> these intraracial conflicts, if that's what we mm-hmm. want to call them, I think that these conflicts exemplify that really well. We don't, we don't always have an agreement, even though people would assume that we would, on what... On, first of all, what uh, qualifies as blackness these days? Anyone mm-hmm. can be black. Um, Just get you the right spray tan and the right if, if they want to. We don't agree on what the limits are and what the boundaries are of blackness, if we are to have them. And we don't agree on things like what is cultural appropriation? Who is, who is appropriating? Who is disrespecting our culture? And I think that that's kind of, that's where some of these these conflicts come about is this lack of agreement, Mm -hmm. which of course then originates from these differences and experiences, right? Like we don't all have the same experiences, but we assume that we do. We assume that black British people and black American people are gonna have the same experiences and therefore see the world the same way. That causes a conflict rather than being like, where, how, how can we bridge this? And how can we work together to get free? Like in the end, we we are all affected by white supremacy. Like whether or not some people are affected more, some people are affected less. If we're working together, if we're working in like a black feminist and radical um, through a radical framework, then we are working against or working towards the dismantling of the thing that affects the, um, the thing that is affecting those who are who are worst oppressed, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that's where we need to be focusing our attentions and not necessarily yeah. Adele. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I agree. I mean, I then gave up on trying to figure out what white people are doing. Um, no offense to y'all, but I really have I'm like that's not a project that I'm no longer invested in um maybe my youth I I I mean I think I'm actually more interested in in the conversation that that it sparked yeah it is kind of like wow that really happened over a white woman yeah but you're saying it's more about yeah trying to figure out where these kind of cultural lines are, can be drawn, but it's like, yeah, it, it's arbitrary because we're all trying to find ourselves and understand ourselves under an identity that was created to figure out who would be enslaved and who wouldn't. Mm. So like, and I think that that piece of what it, of being black is something that we really have to hold true and say, yes, okay, we can do, we can take a, um, not to minimize, right? But we can take a, a a black life approach and say that even though in the past 
being a slave meant death. That doesn't mean that we had to live that way now. As a black person, we have joy. We have this. We have that. We have life, not just death. Um, I think that's that that kind of way of understanding blackness does try to minimize the violence of like what it actually means to be black, right? Like mm. people don't want to not be black because there's so many other things you can be, right? People want to not be black so they can have access to economic opportunities so that they can, they can, they can assume to live longer than 65 or whatever the age expectancy is for black folks. So they can know that they can go to the doctor's office and someone's going to listen to them or they can have a baby and someone's going to attend to them. Right. It's, it's not necessarily that people want to just want to be somebody else because they just want to be somebody else. Um, It's not like a costume thing. (laughs) like I just want to be you know a green person today you know it's it's literally about I just I want um better life chances and better choices for my life and the only reason why that is the case is because Europeans decided a long time ago to tie people's life chances to the way they fucking looked Mm. right and so yeah so I think Um, like personally for myself, like I do not in my journal and in my life. And as I move through the world, I, I don't call myself black to myself. Um, and, but I use the identity black because I know that that's the easiest way for people to understand who I am and like might have a sense or semblance of my history. Right. Um, but Mm. to myself, I see myself as like a displaced indigenous person. Um, it's right. So like, I don't, I don't know the, the mm. term black doesn't really do it for me anymore on a, on a deeply personal level, but on a right. political level, it does things for me on a cultural level. It does things for me. And so mm. I think, but that's like a very complicated way to hold blackness. Um, and I, but yeah, you're right about like the diaspora wars. I think at the center of it, at least for me as a black American person looking, observing these conversations is that people don't want to be black American or be lumped in with us because there's an assumption about our experiences of slavery mm-hmm. um, and our experiences uh, in the afterlife of slavery, right? So we're, we're not well-educated people. We're not ambitious people. We're lazy people. Um, and that still being kind of like the feelings about what it means to be a descendant, an American descendant of slaves. Um, and even in our department, right? I faced, mm-hmm. I faced that issue um, of being marked as the only real black person. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to like the diaspora wars, I guess my question is, why do we as black people globally assume that just because we are all oppressed by anti-blackness, possibly in a similar way, possibly, um, that there is a sense of solidarity should be there. Like, why is that the assumption? Um, and why do we think that, that black people don't need to earn spots in our movements? Um, just like others hmm. I do not think I have an answer for that 
I wasn't just, oh, I wasn't. <laughs> I know. Alyssa, you had to answer. But I'm going to have to think on that one. I mean, what you were saying uh, about the, those stereotypes about black Americans is definitely something I'm very much aware of being, you know, being first generation Canadian of Jamaican parents, right? Like some of these some of these diaspora war things, they're very, you know, they're relatively innocuous, harmless, right? Like I joke about Jamaican oxtail and Jamaican food in general being far superior to black American oxtail <laughs> with my fiance. Um, I came up with a whole, I was trying to figure out, I was like, why is y'all's food different? Like, why is it different? And I was like, you guys season your food, but we spice our food. And that is what I was like, that is the difference. Um, so I make those jokes. But other times, I think those ideas, they can they can betray this kind of internalized anti-blackness, right? Like growing up, I definitely heard that common immigrant crit- critique of the like the lazy black American versus the, the bootstrapping, hardworking immigrant, right? And that didn't really take into account the structural barriers of being multi-generationally, I don't know if that's a word, but multi-generationally impeded um, by by anti-blackness. Yeah. And I, because th- I don't want to like diminish the multi-generational obstacles, oppressions, all the things that black people face everywhere, right? It's like, because of the way that Europeans designed chattel slavery and anti-blackness and the way that the rest of the world continues to participate, including we ourselves, right? Like everyone has those struggles. Um, I I don't know who I was talking to about this. I can't remember. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, girl. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I just be talking to a lot of people, I guess. Um, but like we were just talking about just like this this kind of specific anti black American hate that I guess gets um proliferate proliferated online. Like just the things that you see. Um and then oh yes, because I was watching this housing show where this black American woman who might have been Afro Latinx, they never really unpacked that. But she was trying to, um, she's quote unquote in a relationship with this um, Nigerian man. And for those people who have been in relationships with Nigerian men, you know why I say quote unquote. And like <laughs> his mom, his mom did not approve of her, uh, even though she was like a successful businesswoman. She renovates mm-hmm. and flips houses for a living. And his mom, was just like, so you really think that you are in a relationship? Like, that's literally what she asked. Oh, her. I remember she, when you posted this on Instagram. <laughs> and she'd been with this man for two years. And, like, you really think that y'all are together? That you're in a place in your relationship where you can live together? Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, so my friend and I were talking about the kind of, like, differences with African moms and how they view Black American women, um, particularly some Nigerian moms, Think that it's better for their sons to marry a white woman than to yeah. marry one of us, right? And so this whole like the the welfare queen, the laziness, but also the the shame. I would say the shame of of slavery. Like 
they would rather their son be with the descendant of a colonizer than to be with a descendant of an enslaved person. Mm. Um, and so does that, is that internalized anti-blackness? Probably. But that also, I don't know, there also has to be something else. Something mm. else to it. And not to make black Americans super particular, y'all, but just to say that, like, it has to be something else. Um, but I also know growing up that, like, my mom and my grandmother, they told me, um, well, yeah, they were just like, when it came time to have the guess who you're going to date talk, I had a different talk for each kind of race of person that they imagined I could be interested in. It was very strange. Um, and so, <laughs> so there was oh, a talk I had, for, I had the same. I had, the, you had I the had talk. The I had, different, uh, I didn't have the, the talk. I, there were just comments that I can, <laughs> I can recall about different, different groups of black people. Oh my gosh! That I'll is, share that is what we will say. <laughs> I'll share. Well, mine was like my mom was hitting all of the um, anthropologist uh, classifications of race um, <laughs> with hers. So she and I'll just share the one with about um, white men in particular because that was okay. This imagination that I would be with the white man, which again, whoa, whoa. but um, <laughs> but she was just like you know you got to just wake up. In the middle of the night, like 3 a.m., and pull a knife from underneath your pillow and just start waving it around and screaming and being like, if you ever hurt me, you know, I'll use this knife. Um, And I was like, Mom. I'm like 17, I think. I'm like, Mom, what? But she's like, that's how you have to do because you know how they are. You know, that was her refrain after. You know how they are. Um. And just to protect yourself, um, to keep yourself from, what did she, I don't know if she made a reference to a serial killer or not, but she basically was like, you never know. Wake Um, up at 3 a.m. brandishing a knife. That is. Yeah. That is hilarious. Um, That is how you make it through your relationship with the white man, according to my mom. I don't know how she, I don't know if she studied this or tested it out or not, but um, that was her staunch recommendation. (laughs) well i yes i don't have anything to contribute that uh should be made public on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) on on that front um no one thing well actually what i will say because my mom she lived in new york for a little bit um maybe six months or a year or something like that uh, in her in her early twenties, and she just she just said that she was like black American men. They just they them all just want to get married. She was like they'll always. She's like they'll treat you so good. I was like oh really and Haitians. That was what she said. She said that they'll treat you really good, but be careful because they might you know do voodoo. That was, <laughs> that was like oh um, yeah, well that was but that that's, is that's the... yeah that's another one of those things, and that was one of the things that I studied. Uh, in my for my master's research here in Martinique is that you know those stereotypes uh, mm. about Haitian people because here there's quite a bit of discrimination against Haitians um, but at the same time people would all people would say to me you know they would they would be saying all of this stuff about about Haitians as a group Haitian immigrants who come to Martinique 
Um, and then at the end of it, they would kind of be like, but you know, nous sommes tous venus dans les mêmes bateaux. So we all came in the same boat. We all arrived in the same boats. And I'm just like, um, hmm, that's interesting. They would call, like, they would refer to Haiti as, like, their, the, the big sister, right? Because Haiti also used to be um, a French colony. Or Saint-Domingue was a French colony before the revolution. And so they would kind of refer to Haiti as, like, big sisters. And they would be like, you know, we feel for them. They're just like us um, when they were far away. But when they were close, when they were actually on this island, when they were in Martinique, it was, like, a completely different attitude about about Haitian people and all of these neg negative stereotypes about them. So I was thinking about how one constructs uh, one's identity mm -hmm. in this oppositional relationship. So through this exclusion, but also inclusion. So I was thinking about like Martinique and identity through that lens. Um, but all of this, all of this to say is, I think that people often have these competing truths or these, these competing ideals. So Haitians, big sisters, they got free. We, we too can be free, but when they're here, it's a completely different thing and mm -hmm. we don't want anything to do with them. So yes, we arrived on the same boats, but we made something different of our lives and therefore there's a hierarchy. There's a difference between yeah. us. And even, like, and even in that kind of mode of thinking of this kind of like yeah we don't want to associate with them it's not paying attention to the history of dispossession that haiti specifically experienced having to pay back france and it's like it's not like um haiti is the way it is just because you mm -hmm. know <laughs> like, like this shit does not happen just because it's not like no people are black just because you know and black people experience but people the people think that especially Caribbean people, I will say, they think that all of the disaster and underdevelopment of Haiti was actually is because of like voodoo and because of um <laughs> I've heard people say like they're just wicked people, like wicked as in Jamaicans, like wicked as in evil because of the because of their religious practices, right? And so that's like God um, smiting them for all of the wickedness that they that they do in the past, that they've done in the past and it, all of these things. So you can see the way like these stories, I mean, if you read Silencing the Past, right, the way that like mm -hmm. these stories of um, revolution and freedom get turned around and they get spun and told to people in order to dissuade them from revolution, right? They're like, these people are actually, evil they are unchristian they're ungodly and if you're like them you'll end up like them yeah if you revolt if you rebel you'll end up like them too yeah and i guess that's that is really interesting to me and the gemini quote-unquote devil's advocate let me figure out how to flip this person and me it's just like okay well if god is smiting them with freedom you know, then what, what is God smiting you on, with on the other side, you mm. know, <laughs> on the other side of that? And so but it's not with freedom. I mean, it's like, that's what people yeah, say after the earthquakes and after, you know, all of, all of the, um, nat like natural disasters and things like that, that 
you know, every time they're just about to recover, there's something, you know, there's some kind of natural disaster. And I'm like, it's, it has nothing to do with any of that. The island is literally on a fault line. Like, <laughs> the island is on a fault line. But and... there's, but there's these little, you know, these little ideas, these little ideologies that that get spread and um, mm-hmm. and, and get believed in order to you know, colonize, decolonize right. your minds, y'all. Decolonize your minds, and yeah, it's like, like yeah, I understand the, you know, this is God's punishment for whatever. But it's like, but the blessed countries are the ones who are polluting the water and polluting the air and. So, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be? What does it mean to be blessed, and what does it mean to be cursed under that kind mm-hmm. of thinking? I guess is what I was really thinking about. But to bring it back to Ados, because we did say we would talk about right. Ados. <laughs> Ados is a particularly radical um, kind of. I, if we, if I were to put it on a, a scale of some sort, like Pan Africanism is like a belief that all. African descended people have a shared kinship, right? And that we should have familial or cultural relationships that reflect that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ADOS is a much more kind of like radical, I'm not necessarily opposite end of the spectrum, but getting there. Um, these are the American descendants of slavery or slaves, depending on who you, who you um, talk to who would have a very vested interest in you know black american people particularly those who are the descendants of enslaved folks getting their economic due um and yes, it's a lot of this that's hashtag, hashtag tangibles mm-hmm. if you if you look that up you will see some of their rhetoric yeah. And it, I mean, one yeah. of the things that one, one of the things that's interesting and I don't I want to say that I don't necessarily I don't agree with their rhetoric and the way that they go about this. But I do think that there is possibly something to the idea of them having of of ADOS and not necessarily that term, but having, you know, having their own. They, they support this, like having your own racial category on census forms, college applications I'm kind of like, okay, I can see that, especially, you know, if we're building on what you were saying earlier, I can see that. What I don't agree with is like the whole anti-immigrant sentiment that they have, right? Like they don't want to be lumped in with other black people, especially black immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. That part I, I don't agree with, but I can... This is just me being my typical Aquarius. I see both sides. <laughs> I know. I I'm see like, both I sides when it's not harmful it. to anybody. Kind of like. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's a limit to it. And sometimes I'm willing to to chase to a harm, harmful end to someone, depending on what it is, um, of course. But, yeah, uh, that's, that's an air sign gift to be able to see. <laughs> all sides so as a gemini um i who went to college in the u.s uh who went to duke university which as for a southern university an elite university a southern university the time that i attended had one of the higher percentages of black students um per class Uh, it was about 10 percent and and the time that i matriculated our class was the largest 
amount of black people that had ever attended like in a class at Duke. Um, and we were about 10% of the incoming class, which is about 115 people or something like that. And so um, then meeting black people and we had our different kind of student groups that were mostly aligned culturally. So we had a, a group for Caribbean students. We had a group for African students and we had the black student alliance. And there were several <laughs> many diaspora many diaspora wars between them um, simply because of the re- the university acted like the money, the pot for money was just so small for for us. And so that that created a lot of the competition. Um, but I will say that like one of the things that I when I did interview older black students from Duke was they did remark on how Duke kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, had matriculated a lot of black American students, right? A lot of, um, but that demographic really shifted in the kind of the mid 2000s to 2010. And they started accepting more kind of acceptable black people is the Mm -hmm. label I'll give, right? So more um, African, first-generation African students and uh, Caribbean students. And so that did cause a rift um, among some students because, again, the university pretended like resources were so tiny. And so I could see the utility in like, in having a separate um, ethnic category for um, Black American people because, and we've seen this, I mean, we can see this for jobs, right? People are like, oh yeah, we've, or in movies we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, as long as the actor has a skin color, it doesn't really matter what their ethnic background is. And so we have black British people playing important black American historical figures like Martin, well, no, I Fred think he Hampton, was Nigerian. Harriet Fred Tubman. Hampton, the one, the man who played Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma is Nigerian, but he's not, I don't think he's. Britain or the UK so um Harriet you know, Tubman Harriet Tubman and, and Harriet Averill. yeah um <laughs> I mean even Nina Simone playing I mean not Nina Simone um what's her name that woman they had put in blackface to play Nina Simone that was like an ethnic oh, issue Zoe Zaldana oh see I don't so <laughs> I'm like wow when I blank people out of my memory I'm like what is her name <laughs> Avatar, right? Like, yeah. I mean, those. mm -hmm. I might. So I went to the University of Toronto, and we had similar diversity of quote unquote black student groups, right? Like, we definitely had the African students. We definitely had the Caribbean Students Association, and then there was an umbrella Black Students Association. I didn't really go to any of them. I think I went to one Black Students. Black Students Association. Yo, the BSA events were be popping off though, honestly. (laughs) Oh, it was it was a really good one. It was actually about the politics of Black love. And ooh, okay, y'all. We maybe this Twitter conversations. This is is what we'll put on Patreon because I have a Black love story too. (laughs) (laughs) Really, Black the things that people have been saying in Black Twitter. Listen, y'all. I graduated in. I'm about to age myself. I graduated in 2011. So we've been having these conversations for a long time. A long time. Okay. Long time. Politics of black love. What an event that was. That was 
epic. Um, <laughs> but how did it really work? I mean, I don't think I ever went to the Caribbean Students Association. And I feel like I want to say it wasn't diaspora students. I think it was like immigrant students. So it wasn't people, it, mm. it wasn't really people who were born in Canada um, with like Jamaican parents. I think it was the same thing for the African Students Association. And so then you end up in this like Black Students Association where most of the Black people at the University of Toronto are generally of Caribbean descent um, because of like similar, I will say similar structural impediments that black Canadians, as in like, if we want to go to the whole like foundational black American call, like the foundational black mm. Canadians, um, aren't usually, I don't think, I know one person, my best friend is, um, her, her mother is from Nova Scotia. And yeah, you don't really get very many and most of the people who are there are Caribbean. Let's just put it that way. That's how I would say that. Um, Foundational Black American, uh, let's explain that. So that is a group that is aligned with ADOS. It was created by a YouTuber, I believe, an influencer named Tariq Nasheed. Oh my God. Um, so they both, both groups, they identify <laughs> as descendants of the enslaved. Um, however, the FBA folks, the Foundational Black Americans, they believe that the origins and the history began of black of foundational black Americans, I should say, not just black people, foundational black Americans began in North America in 1526. So they actually deny the 1619 project. And they believe that their history began in 1526 when they were brought over from the Caribbean by a colonizer. This is from their website, so named Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. In a rebellion, the captives, captives escaped and then they formed maroon communities with local indigenous tribes. And so those, that's like what their, that's what their origin story is. So they support, they also support reparations. Um, they don't believe in Pan-Africanism and they believe that they are a unique ethnic group separate from black African and Caribbean immigrants. So I think that I, I'm just like not, I'm not with the anti-immigrant stuff. And I think the other thing is like this, the both of these um, groups, they will end up disenfranchising what are foundational black Americans in the end because a lot of them demand proof. They demand like slave papers. They're like, well, you have to prove that at least one of your parents was or one of your ancestors was enslaved in the United States. And it's like a lot of people don't have that kind of documentation. Who's going to be able to access that, um, that documentation? Not everybody, only some people. So if you're tying reparations or you're tying um, certain benefits to that, not everybody is actually going to be able to benefit from it. So, you're, so I think that there's something flawed in, in their logic. And in many ways, it, it kind of like it it advances these like very right wing and white mm -hmm. supremacist agendas. And I think that's one of the main problems with with their rhetoric. I'm cool with like the idea of as as an identity as a label. 
that's cool. But I think that when it comes to the advocacy um, and their the way that they're going about it, I think that's where we have the problems. Yeah, I think there's a way to nuance this um, that doesn't like <laughs> that doesn't make us have to kind of resort to these anti-black kind of um, log- like these anti-black logics of like blood quantum and things like that. Um, and I'll say like I think there's definitely a case to be made for having distinct ethnic groups because people have experienced different experiences. I think that that alone is enough reason to think about people differently. Um, the sticking point though comes when it comes to like resources and, and it's particularly like economic advancement in this country. Um, and when we think about like, like I, I think about a lot as someone who was pre-med, right? The way that someone with the last name that might be recognized as an, a West African last name Right, might be able to enter into rooms that I wouldn't be able to enter into as a black American person. Mm-hmm. Um, does that person who may or may not be first generation, right, uh, US citizen or, wh- or whatever, um, does that person still, should they lay claim to the wealth or the repatriation of wealth that my ancestors took part in, that their ancestors? did not take part in. I would say on a personal level, I don't think that's fair. Do I think that people should face like I'm I'm these groups are very extreme in the way that they argue for these things. Um and they're very extreme in the ways that they like view their differences between folks from the Caribbean and Africa. Um, Like, I don't think there's like a fundamental biological difference or a fundamental like, like we are just fundamentally different people. I just think that we have different experiences. But I do think that there's something to be said that black Americans are pushed to fight for everybody. But if but if we move to Ghana or we move to Jamaica or we move to Haiti or we move to, you know, Brazil, or we move to Argentina, right? Are is the expectation, or we move to Canada, right? Is the expectation that that the black folks there are going to take up us too and say, well, mm. we'll include y'all too in our reparations project? And mm. I have not, I have not seen that kind of reciprocation that is often asked of us as Black American people. Mm. I think that's a good point. I think, but it also goes back to what we were talking about with um, Deborah Thomas in our reparations episode, which is yeah. that the the reparations um, strategy, the fight, it needs to be something that is collective and demanded, mm-hmm. not just from a single government, but mm-hmm. broadly a variety of, like a lot of places benefited from slavery. It's not just like, the United States, white people benefited from slavery. There's Africa. There is mm-hmm. a, a whole a fuckload of Europe benefited. So it's not um, I, it's not necessary. It's not like a one to one relationship. 
that where we need to be like, we are focused on just this place and we are focused on just this place. And I think that the collective action um, would be more effective as long yeah. as we had a very specific plan for how to actually enact it within the boundaries of the nation state. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's what I was going to say. I That would require us to to actually be against the nation state. And I don't know to me niggas that are ready to think that way. Not just put it like, I don't know. Definitely, to me. definitely not the Adolf ones. They are no. <laughs> like, like pro state, pro, pro because, everything. Because, mm, I was going to say, because even the idea of like, of African states, right? Like the, Africa was quote unquote carved up by Europe. And then mm-hmm. it split different tribal groups, split ethnic groups across national borders, mm-hmm. right? So even even the way that we understand the nation state would have to transform for us to really truly have a um, more expansive movement. But you know me, I've been like f the nation state. We could just <laughs> like if we just got rid of the nation state, we wouldn't have we couldn't have we would not have these conversations about immigrants, That's and true. undocumented, and citizenship. That's true. All these things. It's not. It's not a part like issues. The nation state does not factor into kinship, right? Like Mm -hmm. that is not one of the things that we need to determine. uh, To determine who's kin, but, and I think I think this actually this came up quite a bit in the conversations around the woman king, and there were calls Mm. from ADOS and FBA to to boycott the woman king. Um, there are also conversations about how this was not historically accurate, not even just in the storytelling, because I think that this is a kind of genre fiction. This, I, I watched this film as a historical fiction. So, you know, it's based on true events or real people, but the story itself is, you know, is fictionalized. But at the same time, people were talking about, um, the music, for example, or the, um, the outfits and things like that not being accurate to the actual place, right? Like they were like the home may not exist in name today, but it is the it's now the kingdom of Benin. So there were there are a lot of like contemporary um, people and information that could have been drawn on, but this is but it was more of like this. I was gonna say pan African, but like it was this like broadly African um, kind of storytelling. Yeah, kind of like uh, Black Panther, how they had all these different um, accents. Mm. And people were like, that's not, you know. Oh, my God, the accents were terrible. The accents in the Congo, then da-da-da. Yeah. Yeah, the the accuracy (laughs) of of the story was one thing. But but in terms of the boycotts, people were just like, oh, why would would we be celebrating and supporting, you know, the, the stories about the people who sold our ancestors into slavery you know, the film kind of downplays the role that Dahomey played in the Atlantic slave trade. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that latter point. I mean, there was a lot of like, I'm going to say that it was white saviorism because I do, I, I was told that the script was written by a white woman. So there was a lot of like, we should not, we should not sell our people. We should be a kingdom that loves its people, all African people. And I was just like, okay, this, that's not me doing an accent, an African, generalized African accent. That is me imitating Viola Davis. Okay. 
<laughs> just wanted to throw that out there. And yes, so the whole like, we should be for, for all African people. There wasn't an all African people at that time, right? Like, Saidiya Hartman makes that very clear. The film also makes that quite clear because there are these different tribes and they're warring with each other. So there wasn't this idea of like Africa as this monolithic place. Mm -hmm. um, there is no one single home. But I wanted to know what was your experience like in Ghana? And then we'll oh, wrap I went up. to Ghana. <laughs> yes, I, I love Ghana. Ghana reminds me a lot of South Carolina. I was going to say home. Um, <laughs> to South Carolina. And so the first time I went, both times I went to Ghana was with my ex, um, who is gender non-conforming. Um, and so we had to pretend that we were not in a relationship with each other. And so that added a layer of like complications going there just because, um, you know, just the, the queer phobia, you know, homophobia and stuff. And we were just trying to make sure that we wouldn't be targeted. Um, but outside of like that experience, which I think is what, like, I would never say that Ghana felt like a homecoming, but I would say that I felt a sense of belonging walking through um, the slave castles, which is different from, um, I would say, Saidiya Hartman's experience. Mm -hmm. And I think my my sense of belonging was like, was like standing in the cells where they held um, those, the to be enslaved folks that they classified as quote unquote female. Right. Um, and, and sitting in that dark room with no windows and knowing that like my ancestors could have come through that door, could have bled on that floor for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and had to make do with that life um, was something that was really moving and powerful to me. But also when we were at the slave castle, there was a black man there with his um, his white queen and <laughs> she had her hair braided um, yeah. and she had on her, um, what do you call it? The fabric, there's like a specific kente? name for the fabric. It wasn't kente, it wasn't kente cloth. It was some, it was some other kind of, fabric but she she had her african quote-unquote african outfit on um and he was like kind of parading her around the slave castle but the the good thing there's I so say, much to be said about that that is an analysis <laughs> in and of itself he was and and there was a black woman there with her her white husband who was crying and he was comforting her so that was that was one scene but then there was this black man who was just like, yes, white queen with her box braids and her quote-unquote African clothing on. And um, it was like part of the tour where the tour guy, who was a Ghanaian man, he was like, um, so this is the grave of some white woman who was a wife to the person who built the fort, had died, and she got bit by a mosquito, got malaria, and died. And I was like, wow. The fact that this white woman is not scared of getting bit by a mosquito and getting malaria <laughs> and dying. Um, but also, is that something I should be praying for? Is that ancestral justice? 
But then I saw that the ancestral justice was coming in um, in the back of her head because she was starting to develop a rash from the braids. So I was like, okay, <laughs> it's coming somehow. She will regret this trip to Ghana for sure. Um, uh, but outside, of, <laughs> outside well, of that, oh, I was going to say outside of that, though, I felt I think that my experience was very different from um, Saidiya's for sure because I look Ghanaian um, and it wasn't until I opened my mouth that and then when I opened my mouth people just assumed that I was a Ghanaian person who was born in the United States like mm. everywhere I went people just assumed I was Ghanaian and so okay. they didn't try to like they didn't try to do the the rip me off or anything like that they didn't try to like hmm. like when I would say no, they would listen to me when my ex would say no because my ex looks like a brony. So <laughs> when my ex would say no, they would be like, mm-mm. Um, you, we know you can't afford this, but I would just be like, mm-mm. And yeah, so I I like to call myself a, a faux Ghanaian sometimes. And, and that goes back to what you were saying. Even people who might share the same external or imposed identity have very different experiences. One of the questions I had was, did people, because she writes in the book that people around in the area, they didn't really know what the castle was for, what it was once used for. Was Is, is that still the case? Because I feel like it's mm-hmm. become much more of a tourist area um, yeah. or a place where people take pilgrimages, we can say. Um, so I wonder yeah. if even that, if even that has changed, where people are more aware of what the castle is for and whether that changes how people interact with that place or if it's just more like oh we know that we can stand here to sell tourist water bottles or something um i think people yeah people understood what the class the castle was there for there was also some um she mentioned labadi beach um in Mm -hmm. the in the chapters that we read and labadi beach is actually an interesting it's still a trash so trashy. Um, maybe not quite to the same level because of all the touristy things and stuff. But definitely still trashy. But something that um, we talked about a lot, like my ex and I and their family that lived in Ghana, was just how afraid of the water Ghanaian people were. So they wouldn't necessarily be swimming in the ocean or mm. swimming in pools and things like that. So even if it's not like a voiced memory of Mm. Um, the violence of colonization and slavery, there's definitely a kind of embodied memory mm. of staying away from the water. And that's what I encountered while while I was at Cape Coast, which is people who would go to the beach and walk to the edge, but no one would get into the water. Or if you were in the water, you were in a boat. You weren't swimming. Mm. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then, But people, yeah, are still selling stuff outside of the slave castles for sure um and and one person was kind of marketing it as like you know you came all the way to ghana you came all the way to africa why not leave with a piece of it and you know and that had me thinking like well don't i already have a piece of you know why don't i don't i already have a piece of Mm. africa and um we got into a conversation with one of the merchants and he was very adamant about like not being black. He said, I'm African, I'm not black. Um, and so I think that, you know, as a as someone who other people will identify as an African-American, I think that's really interesting. Um, when we think about how complex it is to lay claim to 
a place that may not want to claim us mm. um, in those same ways. So. I've, I've definitely heard that. Definitely heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not ex- black. Um... I'm not black. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, the water. The water is the rift. Rift mm-hmm. of the Atlantic. That separates us. Um, well, I think we'll, we'll wrap up on that note. I, I will, my final note is beware of false prophets, y'all. And also, I know that again, you can probably hear the cicadas in the the recording. That's because it's late. I am tired. I will be editing this right now. So on that note, that's all we're going to do for you today. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. So thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or even, you know, broken telephone. We get the message out, honey. Um, (laughs) We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to access exclusive content, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. Last but not least, remember to be kind to yourselves. Bye.